0: Okay, we'll do turn uh, back to Judges 14 and 15. We're thinking about the sufficiency of God for inadequate people, and uh, we've seen in all sorts of ways that the people God chooses to use are uh, not up for the job uh, in themselves, and yet God is able to use them. And we come now to the God of the solitary, and we're going to Consider Judges 14 and 15 this evening, and tomorrow morning we're going to uh, finish Samson uh, from Judges 16. Now, Judges 13 is a remarkable nativity story. We didn't read it, though perhaps we should have. We just got the very last uh, uh, point, which is the birth of Samson uh, in the last verses of the Bible of last verses of the chapter but the whole chapter is actually a nativity story that's interesting there are certain people who get sort of special attention around their birth like samuel uh, above all of course the lord jesus himself but samson has one of the great nativity stories of the bible and that nativity story was set in the grimmest of days Uh, You read that in chapter 13, verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Uh, And this is, as we know, a part of a cycle again and again, and the cycle kind of gets worse, Uh, the, the degree to which they are enslaved by their idolatry and the cruelty of their oppressors seems to get worse as the time goes on. Forty years uh, is a long time. It's longer than any other period of domination that we've read about. Um, but in the midst of this, at the darkest and grimmest time, the angel of the Lord appears in verse 3 to a woman who, as my translation puts it, was, but was sterile and remained childless. She was barren. She could not conceive a child but the angel came and told her that she would have a child. Uh, her husband uh, wants to see the angel, wants to ask him a question, uh, and uh, prays to the Lord that the angel of the Lord would come again, and the angel of the Lord does come again. It's a very remarkable... The angel of the Lord didn't sort of turn up every other day of the week. So this is a rather special occurrence, and it happens twice over in regard to the nativity of Samson. And in chapter 13, the name the Lord, or God, comes no less than 27 times. So chapter 13 has God's fingerprints uh, all over it. And the outcome is that the woman, verse 24, who couldn't have a child, gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Manha, Da- Man- Dan between Zora and Eshteol. Sorry about the struggle. <laughs> now, it, it seems such a tremendous lead-in. I mean, how many people in the Bible get a whole chapter before they're actually born, telling you about how they came to be born? Uh, Samson does. A- and in the light of that, it seems a particular shame, because we're kind of expecting some really great things, that Samson when he actually bursts into action at the beginning of chapter 14, seems to make such a colossal mess of things in the eyes of many people. Uh, He is a perplexity to us. I mean, starters, he wants to marry a Philistine woman, and you you know that that's bad news. Uh, That's a bad start. He touches a dead body, though he's a Nazarite, and Nazarites weren't meant to touch bodies. He sets a perverse riddle. How on earth were they meant to work that one out? He acts with savagery, unprovoked, against thirty men in Ashkelon. who didn't know anything about the uh, uh, th- anything about the riddle and so on. He shows wanton cruelty to foxes. Imagine catching three hundred of them and then tying their tails together and lighting torches. It's pretty gruesome stuff. And he has total disrespect for property and behaves with such wild violence in these chapters that one evangelical commentator, who appears on your bookstore, suggests that he behaves like, and I quote him, an uncontrollable juvenile delinquent. He describes his prayer in chapter 15:18, when he cries out, you, you have given this, your servant this great victory, must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? He describes that prayer as a petulant outburst. No judge has had quite such a bad press as Samson. Now, Jephthah's had a pretty bad press, but Samson really has had even worse. Um, arrogant, uh, this is another evangelical comment, it's a different one, arrogant, duplicitous, womanizing trickster. And Tim Keller, uh, he says he's a violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, emotionally immature, and selfish man. So it's thumbs down for Samson. In which case, it is passing strange that the Spirit of the Lord is associated with Samson no less than four times. Every other judge who has a reference to the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him, it happens once. But Samson goes four times. I mean, you see, look there in verse 25 of chapter 13, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Uh, chapter 14 uh, and verse 6 uh, we read that the spirit of the lord came upon him in power so he tore the lion apart uh, chapter 14 verse 19 the spirit of the lord came upon him in power he went down to ashkel and struck down 30 of their men uh, and chapter 15 verse 14 uh, when um We read again that as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. And that phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, uh, is identifying what then happened as by the power of the Spirit of the Lord. It's as though God is saying, each time I'm with this man, I'm with this man, I'm with this man. And shocking as it is to us and for every good reason, that this man wants to marry a philistine woman which seems to be kind of losing the plot altogether we have chapter 14 verse 4 just look at it his parents did not know and we wouldn't have guessed that this was from the lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the philistines for at that time they were ruling over israel so this lamentable plan you suddenly discover is actually god's plan and when this man prays this petulant prayer in chapter 15 verse 18 what did God do? verse 19 he opened up a hollow place and water came out of it and the spring is still there the spring of the caller as the Hebrew means so what on earth is going on? Um, I want us to look at these two chapters asking not what does this show us about Samson sermons about samson basically tell you he's a pretty bad lot okay but that isn't necessarily what it's there for i think what these back chapters are here for is to show us about his god and that is what we do need to hear about uh, and we are ministering in days where unrighteousness is prevailing more and more one day we may live in days which are as grim as samson's days and we need to know a god who can deliver in the midst of the realities of this sort of world that's this broken so firstly the sovereign purpose that only god has see the root of everything that happens is actually spelt out very clearly in chapter 13 and verse 5 it is what dale rav davis calls the hermeneutical star which you need to follow if you're going to make any sense of the Samson stories. Chapter 15, uh, chapter 13, verse uh, um, verse 5, the end of it, says that of this child before he's born, and this is the angel of the Lord speaking, he is to be set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. That's what it's about. God is planning before his birth that this man this child will be the agent of deliverance of the israelites so when the spirit of the lord comes on him at the end of the chapter that's not an idle comment that is god bringing to pass what he says he's going to do and somehow even though it may seem very murky to us god is doing something here in these chapters you see behind what is happening is the passion of God that no one else shared. No one. There are three telling references. Chapter 14, verse 4, uh, tells us that uh, at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 11, uh, tells us, uh, or rather the the men of Judah, 3,000 of them said to Samson, don't you realize the Philistines are rulers over us. Chapter 15 verse 20 says that he led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. You see, this is an Israel that is ruled by Philistines. These days are Philistine days. Um, chapter 10 verse 6 Records that the Israelites began to worship the gods of the Philistines and the gods of the Philistines conquered the Israelites. At Timnah where the action is set set here in chapter 14 verse 1 where this young Philistine woman lived is 20 miles west of Jerusalem just 4 miles from where Samson lived and it's well inside Israelite territory but Timnah is not Israelite, Timnah is Philistine the philistines have infiltrated the land the philistines have basically taken over israel israel is possessed by the philistines and it was meant to be the other way around in judges sorry in joshua 13 at the end of joshua's life god speaks to him of the land that remained To be conquered there are you are very old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken this is the land that remains all the regions of the philistines all the regions of the philistines all of it counted as canaanite the philistines were part of the canaanite world the territory of the five philistine rulers in gaza ashdod ashkelon gath and ekron so uh, joshua is absolutely told that the land of the Philistines is part of the area that the Israelites are to take over. And the, and the Philistines are part of the Canaanite world that the, they are to sweep away and destroy. But the opposite has happened. It's in the other way round. So these are grim days. And the familiar cycle, remember, is sin, uh, servitude, supplication, salvation that's the cycle that keeps coming round. but each time they seem to get in a worse mess but in this particular cycle in the samson stories there's a missing step there's plenty of sin there's plenty of servitude and there's even salvation but there's no supplication There's a missing verse in chapter 13. At the beginning of chapter 13, you read about the rest, but you don't get anything about their supplication. Nobody in Israel is crying out to the Lord. Now, that's when God's people are in a real mess. It's when they're not even praying. They're not even calling out. Nobody seems to be bothered except for the God of Israel. In fact, the modern reader of uh, Judges 14 and 15 is probably most bothered about the foxes. Um more bothered about the foxes than the people of god but the god of the bible you know is a lot more bothered about his people than foxes there is a passion in god's heart that lies behind these verses and seeking to marry a philistine is a very strange starting point but we have the direct comment Chapter 14, verse 4. This was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. You see, this wasn't primarily Samson's plan. This was God's plan. The God of the Bible was on the march. And God's purpose was not actually that Samson should marry a Philistine. He doesn't actually ever do so quite. He's called her husband. She's called his wife. But actually, she's given to his friend. He never actually marries her. God's purpose was not his marrying a Philistine but that his moves to do so would provide the context for confrontation with the Philistine power so God so completely overruled the circumstances of the proposed marriage so that the bride is given to the best man you know you come to a wedding and the bridegroom disappears from view and the best man takes his place that's what happened chapter 14 verse 20 and the effect of samson's plans that all went wrong was a sequence of three confrontations with the philistines and this is what you got to get that rocked the movement of israelite absorption into a philistine world you see the survival of god's people was actually on the line tim keller says we can't i don't always agree agree with keller but incidentally he's off he's always worth reading because he's a bit clever and he's very insightful. And even when I think he's wrong, he's clever. We can't <laughs> exaggerate the danger to Israel. The Israelites are on the brink of extinction. Within a couple of generations, they could have been completely assimilated into the Philistine nation. And he's absolutely right. You see, the story of, of the judges is a bit like an Impressionist painting. If you get close up to a Monet, it's all a swirl of colors and apparent confusion. But you stand back and you suddenly see the whole, and it's amazing. It's beautiful. And that's what we actually need to do here. We need actually to stand back and get the hole. Because there are a sequence of events that interlock. And they all flow from this plan of Samson's to marry a Philistine woman. Uh, it all kind of interlocks. He's going towards... Uh, She's going to to meet her when the lion attacks him. He kills the lion. In the dead lion is the honey that provides the basis of the riddle that he will use at his wedding celebration. That brings about the intimidation of the bride, her endless nagging and her betrayal of of the secret to her mates who are going to kill her. Uh, Then that leads him to attack Ashkelon and his breach from the bride so bad that she is given to another, which leads to him deciding to devastate the Philistine crops, which leads to the Philistines deciding to kill the the woman and her father and burn them to death. And that leads to the second confrontation and the extraordinary victory at the end and the amazing answer to prayer, and it's all sequential. It all is interlocked. You don't make sense of it by coming up close to one of the incidents. You make sense of it by standing back and seeing the whole. And from such an unpromising beginning, an unknown young man ends up in verse 20, judging Israel for 20 years. And from total acquiescence to Philistine domination, God overturns their, begins to overturn their domination. Now, we may object, what a messy story, and the text answers, what a sovereign God. God is at work in a messed up world. Isn't that good news? Because our world is right messed up. And the more you know about what's going on, the more messed up it appears. And what the Bible, you see, judges, I mean, couldn't we take an Ephesians? Wouldn't that have been a lot more encouraging and easy? Okay, you wouldn't have to deal with Jephthah and you wouldn't have to deal with Samson. And you wouldn't have to deal with jail and tent pegs through people's heads. And wouldn't it be a lot more edifying? And and frankly, you end up in the position where you decide that God made a mistake putting the book of judges there. Did he? Who is wiser? God put judges there, and he put it there for us. And, and therefore, there's a reason, and one of the reasons is this is how our world is. And if you're if you're shocked so far, you just wait till the I mean you. You just get a little later in Judges. You get uh, a gang, an attempted homosexual rape, and you get a heterosexual all-night rape and murder and dismemberment of body or sent all over the country. I mean, it's, it's gruesome. It's absolutely horrible. And our world is a gruesome world, despite all that can be beautiful and lovely. Terrible things happen. And does the Bible just speak about the nice things? Is the Bible just about Christmas? Is the Bible just about pleasant things? Or is the Bible about a God who works in our crooked, messed up world with drug dealers and murderers and the mafia and Putin and Assad, etc.? Well, I'm glad the the judges is there because this is the real world. This is the real world that God is at work in. And that also means that God can cope with the complexities of my church and, my personality, and the personalities of people sinful personalities muddled motives sinful reactions God can work purposes of his even then some of you will be in battered church situations and if you haven't been you may well be in the future and you need to know that even when everything seems to go wrong there is a God who is in control even there And if you're going to take offense at God using Samson's dubious wedding plans, what about a God who worked out an eternal plan of salvation using the wicked heart of Judas, the cowardice of his disciples, the malicious intent of the Sanhedrin, and the cruel practices of the Romans to bring salvation to the whole world? I am glad that we have a God who works in the mess sovereign purpose only God has secondly sovereign protection only God can give chapter 14 begins with an attack uh, it is an attack in verse 5 from a lion this is really dramatic isn't? only the Bible would come up with this really uh, ch- verse 5 as they approached the vineyards of Timnah suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him now what is it going on here what is at stake something's going on here you see we know because the whole chapter 13 has told us is the lord has gone to extraordinary lengths to to raise up a deliverer that no one's even asking for and then even before he's touched a single philistine someone's trying to take him out and it's not really the lion is it no satan is trying to take out samson before he begins aren't we in the same territory as the day when herod's soldiers marched into bethlehem to kill all the baby boys you see it's satan trying to destroy the lord's savior before he even begins alec mateer says uh, did ever a lion make a greater error of judgment because verse six the spirit of the lord came upon him in power So he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. Well, I don't fancy my chances tearing a young goat. But I tell you, I wouldn't try a young lion. And Samson tore it apart with ease. Now, Why? Why? What is is God doing here? You see, God is not only protecting him, but he's teaching him something. He's teaching him that God could give him strength out of this world. God can give you strength out of this world, strength you don't have, you didn't know was possible. God knows how to keep his own. crowd in Nazareth tried to throw Jesus off a cliff, but it says that he just walked straight through them. Several times, they they tried to kill him. They took up stones in Jerusalem to stone him, and, and he just walked straight between them. Somehow, they couldn't touch him. There is a power of protection that, until his time had come, he was invulner- He was—it was impossible to touch him. I don't think we probably have much idea of how far God protects His servants. Do you remember Elisha's, Elisha's servant at Dothan uh, when he's terrified at the sight of the Aramean army and? Elijah prays for God to open his servants' eyes and he sees all around them between the Aramaeans and Elijah you know, the chariots of fire, the angels of God, the army of God that surrounded the prophet of God. Now, why are we told these things? Why are we who do not see chariots of fire or tear young lions apart, why are we told these things? So that we may know that our God can keep us in the day of evil and his eye watches over us so that even in times of disaster and terrorism and rampant Islam and deadening secularism and spiritual confusion and gross immorality, there is a God in control and he knows how to keep you for eternity. Sovereign protection only God can give. Thirdly, the sovereign empowering sufficient for the solitary. You see, there are three confrontations with the Philistines that all arise out of the marriage feast. The first is when Samson takes the costly garments he owes to 30 Philistines, and he he takes them by going down to Ashkelon and striking down 30 Philistines and taking their clothes. Secondly, he does this attack on Philistine property with the foxes' business. Uh, and then there is the death of his, his, his attempted wife and her father. And in 15 verse 8, he attacks the Philistines. It says in the NIV, he attacked them viciously. Literally, he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And that results in the Philistines getting an army together in verse 9. And bound in ropes by his own people, he faces the Philistine army. In verse 14, he breaks the ropes and he grabs a jawbone. He doesn't even have a weapon. And he strikes down and kills a thousand of them. Now, this explosion of energy does not endear Samson to many commentators. I hasten to say not to, not all, I think. I think some handle him very well. But a lot of them don't. Uh, Keller says of the attack at Ashkelon uh, now we see the vindictive violence of Samson he can't control his senses and he can't control his temper Kundal says disapprovingly the death of a thousand Philistines was an orgy of destruction Uh, people call him a thug Uh, and the uh, overall message is that he really ought to have been thoroughly ashamed of all this and that is what the modern reader will think, left to the values that he has brought to the passage. But I'm with Luther, who said, I often reflect with admiration upon Samson. Mere human strength could never have done what he did. You see, the strange thing is that the Spirit of the Lord, you see, are we going to run with the text of Scripture or not? The Spirit of the Lord, which enabled him to tear the lion apart, is the spirit of the Lord, chapter 14, 19, that actually enabled him to overpower 30 Philistines in Ashkelon and in chapter 15, verse 14, enabled him to strike down a 1,000 Philistines with a jawbone. This is what Dale Ralph Davis says. The text is clear. What we are dealing with is not Samson's temper, but the spirit's power. If this seems brutal, we must simply live with it. To be delivered from evil will frequently be messy. Uh, Barry Webb, who has a heavyweight commentary on Judges, uh, just says this. He says, Samson is an immature, incensed, out-of-control youth, but at the same time, he is a weapon in God's hand, being propelled relentlessly and unerringly towards his destiny as Israel's savior. And we got to grasp something, which I, I think a lot of folk... Don't immediately see, but is fundamental here. No other person in Scripture received the sort of physical power that Samson did. Why? Why? Ehud, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, they were deliverers, but none of them were, you know, the kind of person who could tear a lion apart. Uh, They called out armies of Israel. And they resisted the oppressors with armies of Israel. But the thing about Samson was not only did no Israelite pray for God to deliver them from the Philistines, but no Israelite ever joined Samson in resisting the Philistines. He never had a single other Israelite fight alongside him, not once. There is an Israelite army, did you notice them? In chapter 15 verse 11. There's an Israelite army, 3,000 men of Judah. But you see, the last thing they're intending to do is to fight Philistines. They come down and they say to him, don't you realize the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? We've come, they say in verse 12, to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. So the only Israelite army has actually turned out to hand God's deliverer over to his enemies. You see, isn't it extraordinary? The Israelites' only plan is to give in. His only plan is to capitulate. That's where Satan wants to lead us, where actually we no longer resist Satan at all. Anything for a quiet life. Is there anything familiar about this? Who betrayed Jesus, but one of his own disciples? Who handed him over for execution by the Romans, but the Sanhedrin, the spiritual leaders of Israel? Who screamed, crucify, crucify, but a crowd of Jews demanding the death of their own Messiah? You see, there was a sense in which it all happened before, as the men of Judah hand Samson over to be killed in Judges 15:13. Sometimes, perhaps a trifle glibly, we say, one plus God is a majority. Well, indeed, but have you ever had to prove it? Samson did. Samson did again and again and again every battle he fought was himself and god and that was sufficient and that i think is probably why in hebrews 11:32 samson's name is there along with jephthah's as one of the heroes of faith god made samson literally a one man army because there was no other israelite in his day who would stand Uh, uh, by him can you imagine going to the prayer meeting and nobody else turns up at all nobody you'd say what's wrong with my church you'd stand up the next sunday if you were allowed and you say come on folks we need to be praying and you turn up the next sunday and there is no one else there and you are the only one that was samson's situation there was no one else who cared there was no one else who fought but God with him a one-man army and he proved that the god who delivers is sovereign to empower don't we need to know that don't we need to know that if salvation comes to israel it's despite israel not because of them and that sounds like our salvation that's how salvation works it's not us defeating satan god raised up one solitary man to save to confront and to defeat satan And as Samson went out alone, so one day Christ went out alone to confront the powers of evil. So isn't the empowering by the spirit that Samson used some encouragement to us? You know, if I got you to list the list of the gifts of the spirit, I very much doubt any of you would have put huge physical strength. It's not what I think of when I think of the gifts of the spirit. But isn't it amazing that the Spirit's anointing of Samson is exactly what he needed for his situ- uh, situation. You see, he knew what he needed. And the lesson is, is yeah, if you actually needed huge physical strength, God could give it to you. But actually, usually, that's not what we need. But the point is that God, by his Spirit, can come in power to equip and enable us for the specific needs of advancing God's kingdom in your exact situation. And if you feel few and outnumbered, maybe you will look back at Samson with renewed respect and learn from judges that there is a God in heaven who can give victory to the solitary. And finally, sovereign provision for all seasons. The chapter ends with two aspects of God's provision for Samson. In a crisis, verses 18 to 19. At the end of the battle in verse 18, Samson is totally shattered and exhausted it says verse 18 he was very thirsty and cried out to the lord in prayer this is the prayer that uh, our friend describes as a petulant outburst and keller says his prayer is neither humble nor faithful Uh, keller's view is that samson's prayer at the end of his life in chapter 16 28 is the sole occasion when he shows the faith that he's commended for in hebrews 11 really really see this prayer starts by acknowledging that the victory he has won is altogether from god in the hebrew it's it's you in the english it says in my translation you have given your servant this great victory in the hebrew it's you you gave this gave into the hands of your servant this great victory Uh, deliverance this great victory it is emphatic he is acknowledging that this comes from God and the description he gives of it this great deliverance is an echo of the promise of God in chapter 13 verse 5 that he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines and in some measure at least that prayer is speaking the language of God at work not Samson at work Uh, he is Absolutely recognising that something quite supernatural is at work. Um, Barry Webb uh, says on Samson's prayer, despite the comments of other commentators, he actually says of this prayer, it is one of Samson's finest moments. And he recognises, I think very helpfully, that there is, is actually a greatness about this prayer. He pleads with God that the God who's rescued him in battle will now rescue him from dying of thirst now if you're dying of thirst i'm not sure you polish up the expression of your need in the most suitable language that others might read i suspect you say it how it is and you don't speak it to suit future generations sitting comfortably in houses with running water and a cup of coffee in their hands this is desperate language from a desperate man have you ever prayed a desperate prayer have you ever prayed a really desperate prayer have you ever sobbed a prayer? They're not the kind of prayers you read out in church, are they? And look at the answer, verse 19. Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. God supernaturally opened up a spring in the very place he was lying to save his life. And God's actions speak louder than Samson's critics. I could do with praying some petulant outbursts if that's the outcome couldn't you and you see we cry to a god who is able to sustain us in times of crisis and special need i need to know that but i also need to know the second thing which is that god's sovereign provision is also for the long term look at the very last verse of chapter 15 samson led or judged israel for 20 years in the days of the philistines Now, these chapters are a very selective account of Samson's life. But verse 20 is an important summary. And it comes again in chapter 16, verse 31, the very last verse of chapter 15, the very last verse of chapter 16. He had judged Israel for 20 years. So for 20 years, Samson served the law, judging Israel in the most difficult of circumstances. And the God who provided for the crisis didn't just provide for the crisis. He also enabled him for long term service. And how indebted you and I are to people who've given years in long term service. Praise God for long term faithfulness of pastors all over the country who persevered in the long term. Not just famous people like Dick Lucas and John Stott and Don Carson, though, praise God for them and their perseverance. But for all the lesser, well-known people, the pastor in your church, pray for his perseverance. And you and I need perseverance. We need grace for the long haul. And there's a principle, I think, underlying this sort of comment. Salvation always moves God's people into an era of godly rule. Now, the way it's expressed in the book of Judges, as in our experience, that godly rule is always imperfect. You look at the story of the judges or the kings in the Old Testament, and they all fall short. But there is an expression of a principle that God isn't just a God who delivers us in a crisis, but He's wanting to take us to a new world order. And our supreme deliverer comes not just to work a spectacular one off at Calvary, but to bring in the enduring kingdom of God that flows from it. And what do we pray? What did He teach us to pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I want you to come, Lord Jesus. I want your kingdom to fill the whole world. I want your eternal kingdom to come. And that's where we're headed. Because our God is the God of Samson. The God who delivers and provides even when no one else cares and no one else will lift a finger. God lifts a finger. And so may we in our generation so far removed from Samson's From these chapters, find encouragement and renew our trust in a God who is sufficient for all seasons, for our days, as well as his. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in your wisdom you have given us these accounts. We thank you that you're not a God who washes your hands of this world and walks away, but you're a God who's come right into our world, into the mess, into the horror, into the tragedies, into the brokenness of human life, and come to work salvation that will bring us into a glorious new world and a new reality. Lord, help us to learn the lessons we need to. And to take these truths into our hearts, not as a matter of argument and speculation, but as a matter of obedience and submission and reverent obedience to our God. Amen.